with a non-Jewish population living in Shaker Heights, Ohio. The economic status and the general conditions of the environment are so different that you would expect quite different standards of life. You need people who are living under uh, conditions as similar as you can make them. Like religious Jews living in Williamsburg, side by side with other people living in Williamsburg. Overcrowded, polluted, poor city services, dare I say that. Um, and uh, substandard, it's not mine, it's, it's a, if they, so if you're going to use the pen, take mine. Yeah, I can take That's fine. Well, I can use it. Come on. Oh, yeah? Um, number one. And number two, if you're going to compare standard of life, you have to pick a value that both groups share. It won't do to say that Jews have superior value, uh, quality of life because they keep kosher. Nobody else wants to keep kosher. Um, but if you take freedom from alcoholism or violence or drugs or depression or suicide, which I think most groups share those values, and you have two groups living, living side by side, in the same environment, and one group consistently scores better on these shared values, then you can say that comparatively the one group has a superior quality of life. And this is not only negative matters, things you don't want, but it also applies to positive matters like family stability and um, psychologically healthy, happy relationships, parents and children, siblings, neighbors, the larger community, uh, literacy, um, preparation for holding a responsible job, which means the right attitudes, the right values. Uh, now, if you have a group which is consistently superior in its quality of life over the range of these variables, um, then you have to ask what it is that produces this superior quality of life. And if this is a historical phenomenon, if uh, as far as we have records of these matters, it goes back into Europe for centuries. Uh, some historians write that in medieval Europe, which was feudal in structure, the only place in Europe that by today's standards we would call civilized was the Jewish ghetto. A place where people respected one another, where there was relative uh, freedom for the individual to build his own life, where there was an organized structure based on recognized authorities, and the authorities were by and large objective and fair, where there was respect for women, for example, which in medieval Europe didn't exist at all, um, so that you have, over a large historical span, and geographical span, what seems to be a consistently superior quality of life. Now, it's true that you can find small, isolated communities which claim also to have a superior quality of life. Let's say the Amish in uh, rural Pennsylvania, rural Ohio. But they achieve this by adopting a very rigid, stereotyped environment and mode of life. They live, with, by and large, without electrical machines. They live a farming existence so that they've, they've created a pattern and they've reproduced that pattern in very narrowly defined environments. 
may be that a certain pattern of living in a certain narrowly defined environment can explain a certain quality of life. But if you have a group which has achieved this in urban conditions and suburban conditions and rural conditions and farming conditions and times of wealth and times of poverty in free societies and in captive societies over hundreds of years in different uh, countries in different home cultures then it can't be traced to the environment and it can't be traced to the specific economics of the life or the particular technology that the life is built around because in this case it varies uh, across all those uh, conditions. It seems that the one feature in common is a commitment to Torah practice. Indeed, uh, many years ago I saw an interesting study looking at American Jews in terms of all these statistics of which we are very proud and arranging the statistics on the, on the basis of how many generations assimilated the group was. You have zero for those who are not assimilated at all, but lead an overt, consistent Torah lifestyle. And then you have children who have left it, but whose parents are still part of the religious lifestyle. That's first generation assimilated, second generation assimilated. And what you find is that the statistics of Jews living in America gradually approach the norm for the rest of America, and when you get to fourth generation assimilated, they're identical. Whether it's alcoholism, or divorce, or, or um, drugs, or crime, or suicide, or, or despair, and uh, depression, by the time you get to fourth generation assimilated, the figures are just about identical. Which is another indicator that what produces the difference is the attachment to a Torah style of life, or a kind of cultural holdover from that attachment, which can last for a small number of generations and have a lingering effect on the person's quality of life until you get so far detached from it that it no longer has any such effect. So, insofar as we are interested in all of these values, all these benefits, um, there's no question that the Torah lifestyle is relevant. Secondly, uh, Viktor Frankl formed a whole, founded a whole school of psychotherapy called logotherapy or existentialist therapy based on the uh, a fundamental human need for meaning. A human being needs to feel that what he's doing is meaningful. He arrived at this conclusion in the concentration camps of the Second World War, observing people who survived and people who were lost, and he found that very often people who found meaning in the suffering and uh, the destruction they saw around them were far more likely to survive than those who did not. Now, I'm talking here about a purely psychological phenomenon. Frankl is consistent, and in my view, this consistency is true to psychology and a disaster for philosophy. For him, meaning is totally subjective. Meaning is what the person finds meaningful. It can be based on a complete fantasy. It makes absolutely no difference. It will motivate the person and sustain him in the ways that he described. He describes one case of a woman who was dying. In the last three days, she carried on a dialogue with the tree outside her hospital window. 
That's dialogue, not monologue. And it gave her comfort because she fantasized this dialogue. He uh, speaks of another person who, in the concentration camps, felt that as long as he could bear his suffering bravely and, uh, and consistently, his brother, who was in another camp, would live. If he would fail, then his brother would die. So, he kept up his courage in order to help his brother, even though, of course, realistically, there's no connection whatsoever between what he was doing about his brother's survival. At any rate, Frankel's school describes a basic human need for meaning. Now, I'm going to encapsulate a larger subject into a very small, very short discussion. What is meaning? What kind of thing is meaning? Meaning is created by connections. Connections, relationships, interactions. When you say that something's meaningful, what you're saying is it has connections with lots of other things. Think of meaningful events. The meaningful events in your life. Okay, first I suppose. Though you weren't aware of it as such. But that's the beginning of all of life. Without that you have nothing. Graduating college. Because you put four years of effort into it. And because it's a stepping stone for your whole professional future. And in addition, a lot of your personal future. So graduating from college is an event that has strong ties to the past and strong ties to the future. That's what makes it so meaningful. Maybe the second most meaningful event after birth in life is marriage because you've been looking forward to it for even longer probably than you've been thinking about college. And if it's successful, it will have the most enormous impact on your future life. And if it's unsuccessful, God forbid, it will have the most enormous impact on the rest of your future life. So it's very meaningful because of its connections. Meaning is is a function of, I'm not defining meaning now, I'm just locating it. Meaning is a function of the connections that things have to other things. Now, the more you appreciate the connections between things, the more meaning you experience, the more meaning you're aware of, the more meaningful your events, the events in your life become. So, if a person conceives of himself on a step-by-step progress towards some goal, and that goal will occur when he's 65, and that goal is extremely meaningful, and partial successes along the way are also meaningful, then every step on that ladder is a very meaningful event. This is step number 62 out of 140. Okay, that means I took 61 steps to get here, I've got another 79 steps to go. So now, you conceive of the whole ladder, and you see yourself at this point in the ladder, at this point related to all the past and all the future, it becomes an extremely meaningful step. A conception of life that is structured in this way, where events connect to other events, where events in one part of your life connect to events in other parts of your life, where events in your life connect to the events in other people's lives, where you have a view of history, that your life as a whole is a step in a historical process. And that historical process started in the past at some time, is working towards some future goal, and your life is a contribution towards moving the history of mankind along the steps to that goal that gives an enormous payload of meaning to the events that you experience. And since meaning is a basic human need, the Torah's description of the world description of the events in your life, description of the progress of history, 
helps to satisfy that need. Now, uh, I just want to insert a footnote to head off uh, the, the critics' um, knee-jerk, thoughtless attack. That's right. You see, you have a need for meaning, and that's all it is, and all your meaning is no different from Frankel's. It's all satisfying a subjective need, and therefore it has no objective validity. This is a classical fallacy, the fallacy of confusing the motivation with the validity. Scientists are driven by the need to find nature meaningful. That's what drives them. To find order, structure, relationships, connections, regularity, lawfulness. They're driven by that need. No one will argue that because scientists are driven by that need, science is totally subjective. It's just satisfying that subjective need. That's a confused motivation with validity. That's what motivates them. That has nothing to do with the validity of the product. The validity of the product is judged by the evidence for its truth. One should not confuse identifying the psychology that drives a person to find the truth with whether or not it's the truth, which is a separate question. So here, too, the need for meaning can be the motivation for finding objectively correct meaning. It can be so. Whether the meaning is objectively correct is an entirely separate question from the question of the motivation that's driving the person. But when we talk about relevance, what Torah, life, does for a person, this is something it does. It satisfies his need for meaning. That's the second area in which it is meaningful. Then, the Torah presents itself as the truth about the way the world is. Now, that it is the truth is something I will argue for you, especially when the JLE group comes in on the 22nd. I have a standard series of lectures on that. I, my, it's, uh, the basic ideas are written up in a thing called the living, for, living Up to the Truth, which is available on the internet, the Orsonet uh, website. So I'm not going to do that now. But let me just, for a few moments, describe to you the relevance of truth. Assuming that the Torah is the true picture of how the world works, that gives it enormous relevance. Let's start with a qualification. Not all truth is relevant. Not all truth is relevant. I had a professor of graduate school who said that being true is neither necessary nor sufficient for being important or interesting or useful or valid. Um, some of you know about Jones Beach. If you haven't been to the Jones Beach in Long Island, you don't know what a beach is. I don't care. Now, Jones Beach has a lot of sand on it. There is a number, which is the exact number of grains of sand on Jones Beach. That's a fact. But it's a fact that nobody cares to know. Nobody's interested in the number of grains of sand on Jones Beach. Not everything that's true is relevant. For a truth to be relevant, it has to impinge somehow on my life. It has to be something which I can make use of. It has to be connected to my goals, my desires, my plans. But the truth about Torah is definitely connected to the goals, the values, the plans of many people. Here's one particularly poignant 
painful, brutal example. There are people, quite a number of people, who are interested in the future of Jewish identity and identification. That there should be Jews who care about being Jews, who identify as being Jews, who are proud of being Jews, whose lives are built around, or at least significantly express, a Jewish identity. Some of these people and some of these groups have chosen means to promote Jewish identity, like Jewish opera clubs and Jewish horseback riding exhibitions and Jewish archaeological digs and Jewish Yom Kippur dances and uh, Jewish swim clubs and other such means. Now, if the Torah is true, this has to fail. It has to fail. Because the eternity of the Jewish people is rooted in Torah observance. That's the only thing that gives us the ability to survive. Indeed, the only consistent factor which is possessed in common by Jewish groups for the last 2,000 plus years is Torah observance. There's nothing else that they have in common. Some were enamored of Greek philosophy and some were enamored of Persian arts and some were enamored of Roman citizenship and industry and so forth and so on. They're all gone. The only feature that is had in common by Jewish populations as long back as history is recorded is Torah observance. So, if the Torah is true and the person looks objectively at history, the twin goals, the goal of promoting Jewish identity on the one hand, and the goal of doing this using contemporarily fashionable Western activities, those two goals conflict. You are not going to satisfy both of them together. If the Torah is the truth about the eternity of the Jewish people, this whole apparatus, with its tens of millions of dollars every year spent on it, is doomed to fail. And by the way, I just want to sort of note that the, the billing of this movement is Jewish continuity. I don't know if anyone has recognized how pessimistic a title that is. All they want is not to lose more. To be continuous. There's no thought of building, developing, growing, expanding, igniting. No, just continuity. Already the game is given up. Because you can only maintain on a par or go down. They have no hope of going up. They know themselves they have the hope of going up. So here, the Torah, the Torah is describing for us a truth about Jewish survival and, and real Jewish continuous existence. And if you ignore that truth, then your goal cannot be met by investing it with um, wrong wrong means. Similarly, um, there's a famous story about Abraham when the king takes his wife because they said they were brother and sister. God comes to the king and says, you've taken a married woman. You're going to die unless you give her back. So the king calls in Abraham and says, you lied to me. You said you're brother and sister. 
I took your, your, your wife as my wife, and it's a terrible thing, and why did you lie and cheat me that way? And Abraham doesn't answer. Then the king asks again, what did you see that you did such a thing? An entirely different question. When Avimelech says, what did you see that you did such a thing? It means, I know you wouldn't have done it unless you saw something. You're not a person who does things without a reason. And I don't know what you saw. So I'm asking you what you saw. Then Abraham answers. And what he answers is this. In your civilization, you have everything. Because Avimelech had spoken about integrity and honesty and clean hands. And Abraham says to him, in your civilization you have everything except one thing. You have no fear of God. And because you have no fear of God, your civilization is rotten at the core and you would have killed me for my wife. The message here is that a humanly constructed civilization that has no fear of God at its core is capable of the most horrible crimes. Now, the Enlightenment in Europe deceived a large percentage of the Jewish population into thinking that the, prog- the progress of Western civilization was going to be their salvation. The comeuppance was the Holocaust conceived of and managed by that country which made the greatest contribution to Western civilization in all the categories of science and culture, Germany. For those who have a Torah perspective, it's not a surprise. It's as old as Abraham. He expressed it 3,800 years ago. But to those who bought into Western civilization, it was a horror, shock. Because they believed in that civilization as if it could carry itself in terms of ultimate values. Whereas the Torah tells us that no civilization can do that. Here are a couple of examples of how knowing the truth about how the world works, the truth as portrayed in the Torah, can be very relevant to a person's goals and values and, and the quality of his life. Secondly, it's important to know the truth about ourselves. Here, Western civilization has concocted a number of myths and these myths have people in their grip no less so than the myths of ancient religions people who know absolutely nothing about where the myths came from and what the evidence is for and against have bought into these myths without any hesitation. And they believe them as gospel. And these have a tremendous impact on how we view ourselves, what goals we set for ourselves, what standards we have for our behavior. One myth is evolution. That we are collectively slightly smarter squirrels. Okay, considerably smarter squirrels. But that's what we are at base. Squirrels at base. Chimpanzees at base. Dolphins at base. Anteaters at base. Now you teach three generations of people that and they absorb it as as a self-conception with the honorific title science. And then people think of themselves in those terms and begin to adopt animalistic standards of behavior because they are being told that that's all they are. And this has a double effect. Number one, standards of behavior fall 
much below what human beings are capable of. And that leads to all sorts of social strife, social breakdown. About eight years ago, I read a news item of someone in Los Angeles who donated blood to a blood drive. And it turned out afterwards that when he donated the blood, he had AIDS. Not HIV positive, AIDS. And he knew it. So they confronted him and they said, how could you do that? And his answer was, I'm going to die. So why do I care? That's what he said to the press. I'm going to die, so what do I care? Now, on the other side of the story, you have um, the Walter Reed Army Hospital in Washington. Walter Reed was a doctor who wanted to prove to the world that yellow fever is carried by mosquitoes. So he infected himself with the disease by having a mosquito bite him, from which he could have died in order to convince people that they have to drain the swamps and kill the mosquitoes so as to protect you from yellow fever. Mm-hmm. I think that's an enormous, enormous contrast. I don't think it's just selected individuals. There was another article about some high school students who were competing in, a, in an inter-high school uh, uh, debate competition and they had stolen the questions beforehand and they won the competition handily and then they were, they were discovered interviewed by the press, and what they said was, our only regret is that we got caught. That's the way the world works. The way to get ahead is to cheat. And uh, everybody does it, everybody knows it, everybody takes it for granted, and therefore, now, if you're sold the myth that you are a, and I know, all the scientists think this is, this is terrible, that you're attacking evolution on the grounds of, of its bad social effect, and they pretend it doesn't have bad social effect, and there are tapes here, so I have to be very careful what I say. Uh, I have substantive, logical, and scientific arguments against evolution. I'm not now talking about the scientific weaknesses of evolution. I'm talking about the social effects, and the social effects, I think, are quite apparent to anybody who isn't, hasn't got a stake in defending science so he can get his paycheck. Um, or you have the Freud-inspired psychoanalytic models of human beings, which trace a lot of their behavior to unconscious motivation or to drives and needs over which they have no control, uh, which results in people believing that they are to a great extent out of control. And this is aided and abetted by evolutionary uh, explanations of why this behavior will be useful in passing on your genes. And uh, thereby... um, allowing themselves to excuse their behavior as beyond their control because they're genetically programmed to behave that way. Now, not only is this uh, scientific nonsense, but it is also dreadfully inconsistent. The same people who will argue that male promiscuity, lust, is built into the genetic makeup so that he can get the maximum benefit out of uh, passing his genes on to the next generation and therefore will use this as an excuse for male promiscuity when it comes to male rape they are not prepared to be so justificatory and permissive even though man, a man's testosterone is 20 times the levels of that of a woman 
and testosterone definitely produces aggressive behavior. But when it comes to rape, suddenly you're responsible anyway. I don't care what your genes programmed. I don't care what your hormones are. And you're expected to do better than that. This is purely political. It has nothing to do with science, but it has to do with your self-image. And um, what they always forget, I believe, is that the genes work above the neck also. The genes also program the development of your brain. And with your brain, you can come to understand your behavior and take measures to control it, and curb it, and change it. It doesn't only program how you are below the neck. But at any rate, if you have the Freudian or the post-Freudian psychoanalytic tradition, you're leaving your responsibility. And you have the evolutionists telling you that you're a slightly smarter squirrel, which leaves you the responsibility, then your standards of responsibility are going to be very low. And you're going to take it for granted when people act in animalistic ways. Because we do have an animal side. It's available. It's just that we have another side with which we could... Uh, of which, with which you can make use to elevate our behavior. Now the truth, according to the Torah, on this matter, is that a human being is a soul and a body. A human being is a soul and a body. Not a soul riding around in a body. A human being is not a soul. A human being is a soul and a body. The goal of life is for the soul and the body to achieve a spiritual accommodation this can be done. Indeed, in spectacular cases, it has been done. One of the commentators of the 20th century said that if uh, only an evolutionary biolo- a biologist had met with so Salanter, he would have given up the idea that human beings and, and monkeys are, are related at all. Uh, don't make the mistake. No one says human beings are descended from monkeys. That's dumb. Nobody says that. Mm-hmm. The, the, the official claim is that we're cousins, you know, sharing a common ancestor millions of years back. But if you had seen Rachel Salanter, he couldn't have made such a statement because his mode of being, his mode of existing was on a different planet from, from, mm-hmm. from the animal kingdom. At any rate, these are examples of how the truth of the Torah makes an enormous difference in understanding who we are, and that will make an enormous difference in how we conduct ourselves, what we think our goals are. All of this is taking the question seriously. And all of what I told you is true, except for applying it to the question. All the facts I told you are true, and all the implications are true, except for applying it to the question. Because, in truth, the question is not reasonable. It's not a meaningful question. It's an absurd question. I'll explain to you why. Because relevance is a relative term. Relevance is always relevance to. Relevant to something. I'll give you an example. A person is applying for a job. Is his height relevant? Depends upon the jobs. If it's the job of an accountant, no. If it's the job of a basketball player, yes. Just even writing into the discrimination agency. They reject it because I'm only six foot one. So, you can't get a job on the Celtics if you're six foot one. <laughs> it just doesn't go. You're going to get a job pushing a pencil someplace, like a shot. Driving a bus, fine. But not playing basketball. Um... 
you're considering a person who's a violinist. His, his stock portfolio is not relevant. But his tone and his articulation is, and his musicianship are relevant. Relevance is a relative term. When you ask, is X relevant? Implicitly, your thinking is X relevant to A, B, C, D, E, and F. If you cut the relevance loose from what it's relative to, you have no question at all. The question doesn't make any sense. So, when you ask for relevance, you're doing it with uh, having in view a standard of relevance. The standard of relevance is some value or some goal. When you ask, is X relevant, what you really mean is Q is important to us. Q is something we're working for. Will X help Q or will X hurt Q? Or is X indifferent? If it helps or hurts, it's relevant. Positively or negatively. If it's indifferent, then it's not relevant. That's why the person's height is not relevant to his applying for an accountancy job. Okay, now what would happen if someone asked about the relevance of the standard of relevance? What kind of question would that be? Suppose someone says, I understand the relevance of a pawn defense for chess, and I understand the relevance of capturing the center of the board, and I understand the relevance of using... um, knights and bishops together rather than two knights or two bishops because the redundancy of pieces gives you a weaker combination. What I don't understand is the relevance of the rules of chess to chess. How are they relevant? What's the relevance of the rules of chess to chess? That question is nonsensical. The rules of chess are chess. They make chess. They create chess. Without the rules, it it is not game. The rules are themselves part of the standard of relevance. When you see the pieces moving on the board, if the guy takes his knife, it moves the three spaces straight forward, he's out because he broke the rules. The rules are what you use to judge the relevance of everything else. You can't sensibly ask what are the rules of, of uh, what is the relevance of the rules of chess to chess. Again, what's the relevance of surgery to medicine? What's the relevance of antibiotics to medicine? What's the relevance of diet to medicine? What's the relevance of exercise to medicine? All sensible questions. What's the relevance of health to medicine? There is no such question. Medicine is an industry of producing health. That's its goal. Health is the criterion for the relevance of everything else. You can't even raise that question. Now let's try a more extravagant one. You can ask, what's the relevance of subways? What's the relevance of arts? What's the relevance of, of um, space, tra- uh, space exploration to life? Maybe that's the largest way to ask any relevance question. What's the relevance of these activities to life? All of life, all of lives, all of people's lives, all of the future. The relevance of all of these things to life. Could you ask, what's the relevance of life? The relevance of life? To what? What is there outside of life against which you're going to measure the whole of life? What value? What purpose? Values and purposes are things had by living human beings. 
life in the large, life in toto, contains the sum total of all values, all standards, all goals, all projects. To take that whole package and ask what's its relevance, would presume you can get outside the whole package and somehow measure it against some other, other what? Other value? If it's a value, it's inside the package. It's part of what living people value. So to ask what's the relevance of life gives you nothing to ask it about. There's no standard of relevance against which you could measure life, the relevance of life. Okay, if that's true, what should we say about Torah, which contains a total standard of relevance? The Torah is a standard of relevance. Because the Torah is a complete set of values. The Torah contains the ultimate truths about the universe and the ultimate values that can be achieved by the universe. So how are you going to ask the question, is the Torah relevant? Relevant to what? The Torah is a view about the sum total of all appropriate life values. Mm-hmm. All valid life values. All true life values. Here, there's nothing outside of it that you can measure it against because it is a picture of the whole. Now, I'm just going to take what I've said down one peg and then we'll arrive at what I think the truth is. That is to say, if you treat it in its own identity, its own self-definition, you can't do it. But if you look at it from the outside and deny its status, deny its real meaning, then you could do it. Let's go back to life. The relevance of life. I could imagine a person who's uh, so, so involved with himself that all that really matters to him is how much money he makes. And he asks the question, what is the relevance of life as a whole to my bottom line? Is the life of humanity contributing to more profits this year or less profits this year? Should I work for population increase or decrease based on what profits I'll make from maybe more people or less people? In other words, what he's doing is taking the sum total of life and, and removing all its value removing its ultimacy, removing its status as the standard of everything else, pretending it's just a blank physical phenomenon. Pieces of protoplasm running around on a rock. What can I get out of it? If he denies life, its definition as the repository of all standards, values, goals, and treats it as just a physical phenomenon, then indeed he can ask about the, the relevance of life. But that means he's not treating life as life really is. He's reducing life to what can be seen through his telescope. He's got tunnel vision, tunnel vision with, 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 uh, with sunglasses on, and he gets a very small part of the total picture, and he's using that as the subtotal of the subject he's willing to address. If you do that, in other words, if you ignore the true nature of the subject, then you can pretend to raise the question 
And you can get a sensible answer because you're avoiding the true nature of the subject. Instead of seeing life truly as the sum total of all humanity, all human knowledge, all human aspirations, all values, all importance, all significance, the sum total of all of it, and when you look at it that way, you can't ask, what's the relevance of that? If you forget about all that and say, well, what I have here is a lot of beings, each one of whom has some money. And so by interacting with them, I can get money. So let's see whether they and the way they behave is relevant to my making money and just forget about all the rest of what life is. Then you can ask the question. But it's not the same question. It's not a question about the same subject. You've dropped 90% of the reality in order to ask a question about the remaining 10%. Now, a person could do the same job for Judaism. He could say, forget about the fact that Judaism is the picture of how the world really is. Forget about the fact that Judaism describes the creator of the universe. Forget about the fact that Judaism has a repository of all of the greatest, most important, true values of life. Think of Judaism as the customs in a club of 12 million members on the planet. And now let's ask, does that club and its customs improve the environment or hurt the environment? Does it move capitalistic economies forward or doesn't it? Does it um, produce um, uh, solutions to computer problems or doesn't it? You can reduce it to an economic phenomenon or to a cultural phenomenon. Does it produce interesting novels? Does it produce, you know, um, well-decorated subway stations? I mean, what does it produce? What does it do? Looking at it as just customs of a club, leaving out the idea that it is a philosophy with a picture of the ultimate truth and ultimate value of the world, then you could pretend to raise the question, what is the relevance of this club and its customs? That's not Judaism. That's to skim off the bottom of Judaism the merest behaviors and wonder about whether they produce money or art or, or literature. That's not raising the question about Judaism as it is. That's raising the question about the tiny slice of Judaism that's relevant to the person who's asking the question. But if you're going to take Judaism in its own self-definition, then you cannot sensibly raise the question what is the relevance of Judaism? because it'll have to be relevant with respect to some goal, some value, some importance, some meaning. And then either that goal or value, etc., will be part of the Jewish picture, in which case you'll be asking what is the relevance of the standard to itself, which is nonsensical. Or it won't be part of the picture, in which case it'll be false. And if it's false, it's certainly not worth asking whether something's relevant, uh, relevant to that. So I think that the question of Jesus' relevance is, uh, is, is an utterly inappropriate question. Um, it's taking the ultimate standard of relevance and pretending to ask about it, is it relevant? And that is not a coherent thing to do. Questions? Yeah. This woman's living a perfectly content life right now. I have my income's fine, my health is fine, I'm happy, I'm, I'm, everything's going great. So not only is the question of Judaism irrelevant, it's just not relevant at all because everything is going, you know, smoothly, so to speak. Um, the question of, li- of, of, of life, though, that, that's, the, that's the only issue. I guess. Well, I, I think there are, two, there are two remarks to be made here. Suppose I say to this person, I agree with you. I'm doing very well. Everything uh, in my life is content, especially since, unbeknownst to you, I've been stealing half your income every year. 
And that's how I'm maintaining my, my standard of life. And I'm very happy with that. I'm very content with that. You know, uh, it's perfectly all right with me. And, you know, I'm, I'm doing well. So I think at that point we say to the person, well, if you are doing evil, then there's something wrong, even if you don't know it. Your feeling content is not the only standard of how well your life is going. That's one point to be made. And the other point to be made is this. Many people can be content just through poverty of experience. Uh, during the First World War in the United States, there was a popular song, How Are You Going to Keep Them Down on the Farm After They've Seen Paris? Meaning, a farmer born and raised in Iowa, where for all, you can, all you can see for hundreds of miles is corn. Right? And it's flat. There's no water except what falls out of the sky. Nobody can drink it and that's it. Um, he could be happy in Iowa, content. Everything's fine with his life if he never sees Paris. But in the First World War, he becomes a soldier and he goes to Paris, he'll never go back to Iowa. He's happy and he's content through a poverty of experience. I'm prepared to issue a challenge to anyone who thinks his life is, ha- is happy and content to come to Yerushalayim for three months. Spend some time in yeshiva, spend some time with religious families uh, of a Shabbos, experience a, a wedding, experience a, you know, a funeral, experience Jewish living, and see then whether he'll be content to go back. I was in Cape Town uh, last year. I've been there many times. I always enjoy it. It's a beautiful, beautiful city. And uh, someone told me there that in summertime in Cape Town, the big question is, when shall I turn over? Because they're lying on the beach and they're sunny one side, and it's, shall I turn over now or in an hour? <laughs> that's it. That's, I said, nothing more to life than dirty go. No, that's it. That's life. You know, life is sunny yourself on the beach. That's the whole of life. Well, I suggested to this person that's definitely due to a poverty of experience. There's a whole lot more to life than deciding when to turn over and sun the other side. <laughs> yeah. I find it hard to believe that they are so genetically different from us that they can't, they can't enjoy higher pleasures than that and find that be rather trivial, but they haven't experienced it. So the fact that they're happy and content is not a reason to think that their lives are ideal. Okay.